Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about competition and innovation. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. On Monday, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the Justice Department will strengthen its rules on taking data uh, from members of Congress and their aides. This comes after the Justice Department under former President Trump secretly seized phone records from at least two congressional Democrats and their families, including a child. Notably, the Justice Department is also dealing with another crisis spawned from the Trump era, in which they secretly seized phone records from journalists at the New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN. Garland stated that Lisa Monaco, his deputy, is already looking into strengthening, strengthening these policies and said that, consistent with our commitment to the rule of law, we must ensure that full weight is accorded to separation of powers concerns moving forward. Torrance Terrell, what are your reactions to these new revelations involving the Trump administration secretly seizing phone records from both reporters and Democrats in Congress? Both he has labeled as his enemies in the past. It wasn't a secret. I mean, I think that that's pretty fair. No, I think that's exactly fair. It, it wasn't a secret, and it's not surprising. Exactly. There's nothing that comes from this where I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that the Trump administration would stoop to that level. Or I never once heard him at a podium say that they were doing this or would do something to this level. He never kept anything he did secret. And I think it goes very far to show how far one political party is going to pretend that he was this great phenomenon that happened, even though he's already told us all the horrid, disrespectful things that he's done in his administration. And this is, I would argue, this isn't even the top layer of the onion. This is like, there's a yellow onion over there. Like once you start filling back some layers, it's going to get worse. And it it's, yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I'll be touching on this a little bit in my above the fold um, in the episode, but specifically just in response to your question, I think that one, again, I'll reiterate that I don't think this was really secret. I think that again, now, as we move further away from um, the Trump administration, we continue to understand that those hypotheticals he would throw out at the podium were less hypothetical and more what they were doing behind the scenes. Um, and additionally, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, I'll say kudos to Attorney General Merrick Garland for being forthright about this, about revealing this to the public and about being very um, intentional about strengthening our policies surrounding this, because I think that this lack of separation between powers and using the executive powers of um, the presidency to go after your political enemies or perceived political enemies, I think that um, that is a huge issue for our democracy, but that's just one of many things on the list caused by the uh, former president. I mean, the only thing I would add is I'm going to hold my congratulations for um, Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice right now because it is noteworthy that they are currently fighting in court for the Trump administration still at this point in time, which to a previous episode we had discussed of um, what's happening in the Southern District and all of these pieces coming up um, counter to Donald Trump. We still, and I think, Torrance, you hit this well, we're still in a space where any idea that this is going to do damage to Donald Trump or um, this present administration is going to actively seek to hold them accountable just doesn't at face value sit with me because we as a country aren't ready for those type of 
accountability metrics and, and spaces. I appreciate the statement on separation of powers, and I do think our system has moved away from that. But at the same time, I can't help but notice that the Department of Justice is currently arguing to stop the former president from being charged with um, defamation after he sexually assaulted a female. Also, arguing other cases for the Trump administration, even though he's out of his um, tenure. I the only thing I'll say to that, Terrell, is like I I don't disagree with like the, the sentiment of what you're saying. I just think that. Um... I understand that like the Justice Department doesn't always have a choice mm-hmm. in uh, in fighting for the law and upholding the law and defending the law. That is a part of their job, whether I like it or not, because I actually am where you're at. You're at. I just understand why it's occurring. Not that I like it. No, absolutely. I'm just being an absolutist. Traditionally, we would cover a couple headlines um, across the globe, but one really stood out, and I think we can just focus attention on and even speak to some troubling news coming out of Hungary. Lawmakers in Hungary pass legislation limiting LGBTQ plus content for minors. Um, the nationalist policy seeks to prohibit content seen as promoting homosexuality and gender change in children, specifically those under 18. Um, when the law was drafted, It was looking to include educational materials, advertisements that deemed um, to be promoting gay rights. And it's noteworthy that similar legislation passed in Russia um, back in 2013. Traditionally, I wouldn't ask questions here, but knowing us and, and who we are, and also knowing that activists in Hungary are pressuring and looking for lobbyists to step up and connect with the Biden administration to speak out against this and that we're in Pride Month. Um, Do you two have any reactions to this news or any concerns of what this could mean in a broader sense as countries continue to have this um, attack for the LGBTQ plus community? I'll just start by saying that I'm not surprised that this is happening in Hungary at the moment. They've been under uh, kind of a very, very nationalist government and leader for for a few years now. I'm surprised this didn't come sooner. Um, I think there's some hope in Hungary. There's a lot of all the opposition parties, um, just like in Israel, have recently come together um, behind one guy to take down. um, I don't know his name, but the current prime minister, I believe, of Hungary. Um, So I think there's some hope because something like that almost never happens, especially in the country of Hungary. And, you know, it's, of course, it's disappointing to see. And I do think that, that the U.S. and its allies need to be looking into this matter, um, especially in the name of human rights and whatnot. But I think there, I think there could be some hope. um, But part of that is just waiting to see what happens. So. I'll start by saying, obviously, this, this kind of news always just breaks my heart. Because something that has to be said about policies and laws like this is that it doesn't, it's not going to change how many gay people there are, how many queer people there are. It's not going to make someone not gay, not uh, lesbian, not bisexual, not transgender. It's not going to stop any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just going to actually drive young queer people to become more mentally ill, to probably take their own lives, which that's the part that breaks my life, that they are living in a country that is, um, that, that they're 
lawmakers are basically saying with the passage of this that you're not welcome, there is something wrong with you, and that what what you um, espouse to be is not welcome in our country. Um, and I think that that's just that's always heartbreaking. Um, but I would say like for the country for like Hungary, um, the only good thing that I can see from this is that there was huge demonstrations mm-hmm. um, trying to stop this policy from being passed. And I think that that says a lot about this country because of um, the kind of turmoil and nationalist government that they've been in over the last several years. And that was just news to me, Caleb, of um, the coalition parties banding together um, to try to make that change because there was a very big demonstration in Hungary against this bill being passed. And so um, that always gives me hope to see what the people do when they band together. Um, but nonetheless, also, I was reading up on this. Um, I'll say something that really pisses me off is that it was an effort to eradicate pedophilia. And so this this uh, conflating being LGBTQ, being gay, being queer with somehow more likely being a pedophile is just fucking disgusting and it's it just pisses me off it just pisses me off i mean yeah it just really bothers me it can feel defeat it can feel defeating and there's a lot of stuff that's occurring right now um in other countries um just specifically during pride month it really grinds my gears noteworthy is both in hungary and russia it is illegal for um, same-sex unions um so as you all have both mentioned it's important that these stories um, see light and are discussed globally, but also important that the people of the country are able to demonstrate and call out that this type of um, action and this recognition from their legislative body is not welcome. Back here in the States, uh, per a story from CNN on Tuesday, the House Oversight Committee led by the Congressional Democrats released a batch of emails detailing efforts by former President Trump and his allies to pressure then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to consider false and outlandish allegations that the 2020 election had been stolen at the the time of Rosen's elevation to acting Attorney General in December of 2020. The emails show how Trump's White House assistant, chief of staff, and other allies pressured the Justice Department to investigate false claims of voter fraud and to join the legal effort to challenge the election result, all of which are spelled out in these emails released by the House Committee. The emails also provide new details into how Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, directed Rosen to have then-Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Clark, who reportedly urged Trump to make him acting Attorney General instead of Rosen, investigate voter fraud issues in Georgia before that U.S. attorney there resigned in January. Amid the pressure, Rosen said he refused to speak to Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, about his false claims regarding the 2020 election. House Oversight Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney, a New York Democrat, sent letters on Tuesday to Meadows, Rosen, Clark, and other DOJ officials seeking their testimony before the committee. Chairwoman Maloney said in a statement, quote, President Trump tried to corrupt our chief law enforcement agency in a brazen attempt to overturn an election that he lost. Um, Terrell, Caleb, the further that we move away from the Trump administration, the more information continues to come out about the former president's corrupt efforts to overturn a free and fair election that he lost. What are your thoughts on this development and what it says about the Trump administration's use of executive power to corrupt our institutions for his personal gain? I think like the last, like my above the fold piece about the uh, uh, Justice Department and taking records like that secretly, um, it's not a surprise. And it's interesting that I don't know if it is as much in this one, but in the last one, I thought it was interesting that the the narrative is secretly. Um, I just think that it just continues to go to the idea in a narrative that I think should be there that the Republican Party is just continuing to get worse after Trump 
is gone. <laughs> for some some reason, we all thought that they might get better, or maybe not all of us thought that, but some Me, of us did. I thought that. I definitely did think that. It was. I mean, it was part of the narrative at the time too, but it just hasn't done that. And then seeing this, I mean, it's not surprising, but like, even Mitch McConnell was like, "Now it's not necessary to actually." have these people test like testify or anything mm-hmm. and it's like it they just don't care anymore i mean they never did but like i felt like it it was a big deal if they said this a few years ago and now it just doesn't matter they're just it's just worse i don't know i see this kind of stuff and the reaction from the republican party just makes me feel a little bit hopeless and i think a lot of people probably feel that way and I, I don't think we should feel hopeless. Like there's a lot that we can do, but uh, it's just so frustrating to see this kind of stuff. Yeah. I think for me, something that I'm interested to see from a political science realm is an evaluation of the impact Rosen had on the department of justice during the time. Um, I think this is an actor who played some very, very high level um important spaces during the Trump administration, one in the Russia investigation after being tapped to lead that investigation and and play a pivotal role in how the special counsel came to be, but two now in these spaces as being, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but towards the middle part of the administration, I do believe a group of Republicans came out and wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying we know that this president might feel dangerous, but there are a group of us who are who are holding him and keeping him wrangled, and we're the ones really running the country. It was something along those lines. And uh, since then, a lot of those individuals have come out. But I do think Rosen, while he might not have been a part of that op-ed, played a strategic role in ensuring that there was some semblance of justice and and and. I won't say accountability because that's not accurate, but just some sense of the Justice Department is not the personal, the purse, the whatever you want to call for the president. And in this specific piece, I think what bothers me the most is the fact that we are still calling it a big lie and we're still pretending as though that is a good enough way to understand and reflect on and speak to an insurrection that happened in our country led by the former president of the United States and a constant attack on our democracy that will outlive him and any semblance of what he's done. Um, And you have people like Rosen who I think don't get credit, but also could have done more. So that's where I'm struggling here. Maybe I'm just a little bit cynical here, but like these emails to me aren't going to change a thing. Like Republicans are still passing shitty voter suppression bills across the country. Uh, Republicans in the Congress aren't going to do anything about it. And then it's just going to look like Democrats are trying to go after all of them because that's how their messaging fucking machine works. So it just doesn't feel like this is actually going to do anything. Well, no, I think that and that that's that's where I would say my hopelessness is, Mm -hmm. is that like there's no accountability. I mean, there are concrete evidence of a concerted effort 
to use executive powers to influence our Department of Justice to go after to go after perceived political enemies and to go after outlandish and purely false allegations of voter fraud. And there seems to be zero accountability or zero effort to hold anyone accountable, both from the DOJ. So that's why that's where my frustration comes in with with Attorney General Merrick Garland because mm-hmm. we're we're being shown this, but we're not be, we're not actually hearing about any um, effort to hold those people accountable for their actions, as well as it just becomes really frustrating that like it seems the Republican Party on a whole has no interest in discussing any accountability for for actions that are that are proven criminal, and I don't know how we break through like you said the messaging power of the right wing media um, because they have created a ecosystem a communications ecosystem that does not allow for their supporters to receive facts to be. Um, well-informed and are just constantly fed excuses, lies, and cover-ups for activity by members of their party. So it's just, yeah, it's really, really frustrating. And it does not actually feel like, I, I don't know where to point um, to get some accountability. And that is concerning and scary because we're saying hopelessness, but really that's the deterioration of our democracy. We know it's been a while, guys, but we are excited to come back with a segment of Legislative Lowdown this week. Um, Last week, and likely one of the last bipartisan efforts from Congress, the Senate passed S-1260, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. The measure authorizes about $190 billion for provisions to strengthen U.S. technology and research and would separately approve spending $54 billion to increase U.S. production and research in the semiconductors and telecommunications equipment, including $2 billion dedicated to chips used by automakers that have seen massive shortages and made significant production cuts. Um, all uh, those, chip, those chips are largely made in China. Um, this, this bill is, I, I don't want to misspeak, but it's being called the China bill because they are our main competitor mm-hmm. in this um, in this space and in this industry. And we have a heavy reliance on them. Um, specifically, we, I think people know that cars are at like a 12% higher um, cost than they have been over the over previous years. And production is down because um, the production of those microchips that are needed for these cars are made in China, who was shut down um, longer and more efficiently than we were during the pandemic. Um, so... Guys, I, I know that you guys have done some research yourself on the bill, um, as well as I. I think that this is a really great step. Um, I know after we had two episodes back-to-back talking about the lack of bipartisanship occurring in Congress, it's kind of nice to see a bill um, that I think we would agree is, is good for our country and good for industry. Um, maybe we would like to see more, and we'd like to see some additional um, investments in other places, but I think that um, I don't want good to be the enemy of great in this situation. I think that like whether we would want more, I think this is going to do some good things for our country. Um, in, in a statement from Senate Majority Leader um, Schumer, who is also a co-sponsor on the bill, um, he said, quote, passing this bill now called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act is the moment when the Senate lays the foundation for another century of American leadership. He continued on to say, quote, around the globe, authoritarian governments believe that squabbling democracies like ours can't unite around national priorities. Well, let me tell you something. I believe that they are wrong. I believe that this legislation will enable the United States to out-innovate, out-produce, and out-compete the world in the industries of the future. Um, I think it's nice to hear some kind of like uh, some optimistic language coming out of Chuck Schumer um, about our economic uh, future. What are you guys thinking? Raise your head up. I, <laughs> I'm over the American exceptionalism piece. I'm over this idea that <clears throat> while it did pass the Senate, which many were cautious it might not, 
we can't ignore the fact that it passed 68 to 32. It barely made it pass a cloture vote. If you really want to get into the numbers, you had 18 Republicans that signed on and moved forward, one of which being a leading sponsor who led negotiations to have it done. Something else is the majority leader sent this through regular order. And the original intention of this bill, as the administration had mentioned, was to allow for the um, the infrastructure packages that the administration was coming out with to take parts of it out and insert it into this competition piece and say from from a scientific um, modernization perspective, as we're challenging China, as we we are moving forward and being more innovative, here are infrastructural pieces that can also be added in. And because we went through regular order, you saw a lot of those pieces be watered down. And the Republican Party nearly um, torpedo it because they they felt like they didn't care anymore. So uh, we talked about this a little bit off air, but I think, which is ironic after all the conversations we've had, I think this bill to me shows that bipartisanship is less likely because this is the one opportunity that I do feel both parties had to come together. There was an opportunity to go back to how the legislative process works and you still saw opposition and you still saw uh, pandering and performative actions from various senators to add in amendments that had no right being in this bill while also calling out the administration for doing what they considered to be the same thing. Um, so I find a lot of frustration and I, I think there was a, a box article that um, I think worded this perfectly instead of showing that America can come together around one topic and be on the national stage again, I feel this bill did the opposite and showed that there are still some deep divisions that are hindering our ability to challenge um, competitors abroad and be the national innovative figure that um, we have held on to and thought we were since the late 50s. Caleb, what are you thinking? I don't know, because on one hand, I agree with your statement that good should not be the enemy of great. I really do, because this is almost a quarter of a trillion dollars, and it goes to kind of what we need. But Terrell makes a really fair point here. It's still bipartisan, but it was it wasn't. Would it be okay to say the normal bipartisanship, the Mm -hmm. legislative process? Mm -hmm. I just am not confident we're ever going to have that again, or again, meaning in the near future, at least the the legislative process that you talk of so i do think that this i didn't feel like this made a lot of headlines but i do feel like although it took a little bit to get there and a lot of pandering and whatnot i'm really under the idea that this was bipartisan and joe biden and the democrats can use that as a as a good message point like look we have done stuff with the other side like you wanted us to to the american people and whatnot So my reaction is it's not great, but I don't know if you're going to get great um, with any kind of bipartisanship these days. Good should not be the enemy of great. And it's a good messaging thing at the end of the day for Democrats. And I I do think it's noteworthy that this bill is a, um, 
a combination of the Endless Frontier Act, the Strategic Competition Act, and the Meeting the China Challenge Act, um, all which were discussed this year. But part of my frustration is in the fact that the Endless Frontier Act really had a, a bold and progressive vision for how do we retrofit our present America to the challenges and and the things that are needed today. And while I am very, uh, we can't discourage the fact that the chip shortage has been crippling our manufacturing industry. It has slowed automotive production and it's very important that the government has finally stepped in to do something there. This bill was intended to do so much more and uh, agreeing with you, Torrance and Caleb, that um, good can't be the enemy of great. However, I think back to a lot of conversations we've had of doing what's best for the country and moving forward in that realm. And I do genuinely question, did this legislation meet that that small benchmark or are we starting to lower our benchmark because this is the best we can do now? And those are my my deep seated concerns. I I, I can I can understand, I understand that, uh, Terrell. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, like one of the larger, like, and, and, and you can even call this symbolic if you'd like. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that I really took away from this is that we have an over-reliance on China um, and look no further, obviously, than our issues with the chips right now. But that's that's not just it. We're just like that in, in a lot of other industries, there's a surplus that, is not, that has not led us to such um, la- a lack of products that, that we get from China. However, I think that when we talk about China being a main player in the economy, that we don't share the same values as that country. We don't mm-hmm. share the same values as their government. Um, they are an authoritarian government. And I, you know, Schumer said, quote, like on the floor, he said, quote, do we want the image to be a democratic image or do we want it to be an authoritarian image like President Xi would like to impose on the world? Either we can concede the mantle of global leadership to our adversaries or we can pave the way for another generation of American leadership, end quote. Now, I'm with you, Trell. I am so far over the American exceptionalism uh, <laughs> that we constantly try to promote uh, of ourselves. But when we're talking about, like, I, I don't want to say, not at the expense of being continued, continually relying on China, a country that I do not believe in their, in, in their government. I do not believe in the way they treat their people. I do not believe in the values that, uh, that they hold. And I think that we have a lot of issues here in our homeland, but the last thing I want is a reliance on a country who doesn't, who does not share our democratic values. And um, whether that is just symbolic, right? The, the the amount of investment that we're making in industry is not does not meet the moment, does not mm-hmm. meet what we need. That's I'm not going to say that, but this is the, one of the biggest investments um, in technology, research, and development um, in the last decade. And I think that it was wolf, we woefully under, underinvested. And I think that this still doesn't meet that moment, but I think that it's a good step forward. Um, and I'm not, like I said, let it gonna let good be the enemy of great. A small shift from speaking towards the legislation, because I do think you bring up some very good points of China's role, um, both for a geopolitical standpoint, but also um, just in the sense of everything happening. Is this is moving forward with policies like this continuing to be productive or is it potentially causing a a hindrance or a challenge for us as we look to the future with diplomacy with China? And should we also be thoughtful of the 
idea of bringing them to a table as well. While I do think and agree that competition is important and owning the fact that we as a country have been lacking in a lot of areas, the way we've started marketing this, the, the use of this idea that it is strictly to counter China, not to revolutionize the country, are we running a, a potential shortcoming when it comes to diplomatic maneuvers um, in the future? I don't think that China is one of our honest diplomatic uh, partners. I, I I think that that's <laughs> giving them far too. I think that's giving them far too much credit. I think that a part of our issue that it, that is a very real issue is that they're an authoritarian government and they can make a lot of unilateral decisions that allow them to invest in the future. Uh, and being a democracy, that is wholly more difficult for us to do because we have to find more of a consensus to get these things done. Um, and I think that if we continue to think that or act like China isn't long gaming us constantly in all of our diplomacy and all of our economic uh, agreements and all of our military agreements, they are they are playing a long game. Yeah. They own a large sum of our national debt. They are growing militarily in might. And I think that if we're not being real about that threat, and I'm not saying some sort of like, you know, like end of world threat, but I'm saying like they are amassing a large amount of power that they can hold over us and the international community. And I, and I also think that it's been, uh, it's been great that this past week with president Biden and the G seven getting together um, in England, that the efforts that they're taking to try to create a stronger alliance amongst, amongst the G seven countries um, with the growing military might and economic might in the, in the Europe, in Europe um, with China, that we are taking active steps to face this issue. Um, and and to, to that point, I want to quote something. After the, after this bill passed, China's parliament extra, expressed, quote, strong indignation and resolute opposition uh, to the bill. And, and it said in a statement that the U.S. bill showed, showed, quote, paranoid delusion of wanting to be the only winner and had distorted the original spirit of innovation and competition. And the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, Wang Wenbin, told reporters in Beijing that, quote, we firmly object to the United States seeing China as an imaginary enemy. And that's my, that's where I go back to what I said originally. I am not going to act like China is an honest and good faith diplomatic partner because they think that we're seeing them as an imaginary enemy. Numbers are numbers and facts are facts, right? Terrell, they own a lot of our national debt. They are growing yes. militarily. They have a lot of, they have a lot of, um, with, they can hold over us with industry, our reliance on them economically. They are a, maybe enemy is a strong word, right? Like, but they are our number one competition in these in these arenas, and we have that. to act like it. And I'm not talking about American exceptionalism. I'm talking about a, a free and democratic society uh, and, and continuing to uphold those values across the world, economically and democratically. I, I, I completely agree, and I don't want to cut you off, Caleb. So if you want to jump in, feel free. I, I just want to add to that. I think pushing them to the realm of enemy versus someone that uh, I think we all can agree has become more of an enemy of democracy, Russia, brings some challenges to me of you have a country who's actively hacked into cyber networks of this country, has hindered um, uh, oil production, has hacked into and, and spread disinformation for a free and fair election in this country and does it across multiple areas, has annexed a part of another country because they said that a lot of their people live in that part of the country, so they rightfully own it. Ooh, 
understanding geopolitics and understanding that Russia, China, and the U.S. are all in very different corridors of the matrix, I, again, think to my my point here of it's one thing to be Boston and L.A. and be adversaries versus being um, the Pistons and the Bulls who were genuinely enemies because they physically attacked each other. And when you, I don't know why I jump on the sports reference here, but here we are. When I think about uh, Boston and LA, specifically the time where they were adversaries, you think of Magic Johnson and um, Larry Bird and how they would shake hands and, and show some sense of this is for the NBA, not just for our individual teams. And while I approve and, and appreciate the actions of this bill, I question if there's an opportunity or has ever been an opportunity for that type of action to happen with us while we have a genuine adversary like Russia um, that our government is, well, let me rephrase that, that a specific party is continuing to pretend isn't a problem. I kind of want to jump in here because enemy might be, it might be a strong word and it might not be a strong word when we describe China. Ooh, okay. Russia, okay. because like Russia is very, <laughs> has their hand in a lot of cyber warfare going on and, and we've identified that. China is a bit sneakier when it comes to cyber. They've embedded themselves in American companies overseas in China. um, And that doesn't seem to make headlines, but they've done it and they've been there for years. And they've different companies, including like Amazon Web Services, has found Chinese microchips, tiny little microchips in their servers and whatnot before. Like this, these are things that actually happen. And then if China's not a direct enemy to us, China is probably a direct enemy to the idea of democracy in a free and fair society, like you said, Torrance, because look at Hong Kong and look at Taiwan. They're knocking on the doorstep of Taiwan. It's not guaranteed we would be able to protect Taiwan if China decided to invade. Mm -hmm. They sent 30 uh, fighter jets over over their airspace the other day. Um, And then I'm not going to get the the name correctly or pronounce it correctly, but I mean, there's millions of a Muslim minority um, in one of their provinces in concentration camps mm-hmm. that they're re-education camps is what they're calling them. And so if China's not a direct enemy to us, they are a direct enemy to the ideals that we talk about when we talk about a free and fair society and democracy and whatnot. So I, I kind of wanted to challenge both of you on the word enemy. And if they aren't direct, they are probably a rival economically Right. I think this That's is a good word. Yeah. And this is a good step. It's a good step. It's not perfect, but it's a good step in that direction. Um, especially if we want to continue. Yeah. I don't, I don't know about American exceptionalism either, but if we want to continue to project free and fair society and democracy around the world, we need to continue to do that here at home and around the uh, globe mm-hmm. as well. Well, yeah, and I think that like there's a difference right between American except- exceptionalism and making an honest investment and being more self-reliant, right? And, yeah. and being more of a leader in industry and in these spaces. I mean, to, to get back to the bill just more specifically, I think that especially after the last year and knowing just how a virus that creates a pandemic shuts us down and, and, what, and what that does to our economy and our industry and our reliance on other countries, specifically China, that, that some of these actions are really important. So in this bill, um, it directs the Department of Commerce uh, to do three things. One, establish a supply chain resiliency and crisis response program to address supply chain gaps and vulnerabilities in critical Mm -hmm. industries. Two, to designate regional technology hubs to facilitate activities that support regional economic development and that diffuse innovation around the United States. And three, award 
grants to facilitate development and implementation of comprehensive regional technology strategies. Um, and I know that that's kind of a lot of bunch of like, you know, jargon legalese <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and policy writing, but essentially to, to make honest investments, but like to identify like where do we rely on imports and technology that end up hindering our ability to manufacture and be a manufacturing might in the world? And how can we become more self-reliant by investing in the research and development to manufacture those things ourselves? Um, and also to be very um, intentional in establishing a supply chain resiliency and understanding what we're going to do in a crisis so that we're not facing with the same situation that we were this past year when the pandemic hit. I think that these are really honest approaches to the issues that we face. And like I said before, I don't know that it, that this fully meets the moment um, or what we th what we do need, but I think that it's a really good start. And I think that like, doing this is an acknowledgement of the larger issue that we face economically. Um, to go back to a little bit of what Terrell said specifically um, like about, about Russia, right? The difference with Russia is like obviously they're a huge democratic adversary. They are hostile to democracies across the across the mm -hmm. world, specifically us. They are continually um, engaging in anti democratic warfare, um, and I think that that is something that we cannot take our eye off the ball on. But the difference between the two is that China and them share that, that share that. But what they don't share is Russia doesn't have the same economic hold over us that China does. Yes. And so, the, and so in that way, they're less of a threat because we could cut off diplomatic relations, we could cut off economic relations, and, and it would not have the same impact on our country as, say, trying to do something like that with China. And, and when they, if they did something um, measure, like egregious to the point that would that would result in that kind of action from us. So I think that like they're they're just different. It's not that one is um, that we should be focused on one over the other. It's just that they are different issues. And one is, you know, one's more complex than the other because we are so, at this point, inextricably linked economically with with China because of our dependence on their imports. Well, and China is economically just, I would argue, more powerful than Russia is. Oh, 100%. 100%. But also yeah, around, 100%. around many different countries in the world, too. Yeah. Like, they're trying to Africa. gain, yeah, they're trying to gain a lot more influence in areas where we just haven't paid as much attention to, or yeah. maybe haven't done as well as we wanted to do. Um, also something about the technological hubs. It, I think there's something in the bill that said like one third of them has to be in uh, rural areas of the country. And I thought that was quite interesting that they added that there. And I, I also thought that would, that's a good thing too. I don't know if y'all had reactions to that. I just thought it was important to mention. Well, I just think that it acknowledges an issue that we're facing economically in our country, and specifically in rural areas yeah. where that opportunity has gone away. And so, again, that's what I was saying about being very intentional about trying to address the issues that we face. Um, and if we can do some good domestic policy, right, at the same time, that that's a win. Yeah, I, I was just going to add, I we talked about this before. Um, it, it's hard to ignore the fact that as these innovations happen, there are parts of this country that are genuinely left behind, whether you agree with their politics or not. Rural America is a space that isn't connected to broadband the same way as a lot of our cities that we live in are. Mm -hmm. And it's appreciative that this bill is taking steps to start finding a way to unite the country beyond just us feeling like we are Americans, but actually understanding that in the 21st century, being united means being able to connect to internet. If a pandemic were ever to happen, like you both mentioned, again, there were rural Americans 
children specifically who couldn't go to school any longer because they had no access to internet. Those are issues that we as a country do need to face and, and own. And I appreciate um, those steps in that, that direction. Yeah. And I also think that like some of the investments that are made here are a quiet admission of poor economic pol policy by the Republican Party in the early 2000s that, that resulted in so many of our uh, manufacturing jobs going overseas. Now, we mm -hmm. all know politically they try to blame that on um, the Democrats, but policies are policies and you can go back and look at them. They are what they are. Um, trickle down economics doesn't work and allowing for those jobs to go overseas was in direct result of policies by the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, and that this bill extends um, through 2026, the Manufacturing USA program that supports programs and innovation um, for growth in domestic manufacturing. Things I think no matter what party you're, you are a member of right now or no party at all, that we understand those to be huge economic issues in our, in our cities and in rural areas across the country. That is one thing that I I think we should give some time to is the response from corporations, specifically the automotive industry, because this is very important to them and they're appreciative. But Torrance, you make a very important point of um, our manufacturing jobs disappeared, not because of uh, democratic policies or this idea that we need to run forward into X industry, but it was genuinely because of Republican administrations that looked to allow more freedom and more movement for corporations when it came to their workforce. Um, now we have a, a bill that is, again, paying more attention to and focusing on China and those in instances, while also looking at bringing, like we mentioned, the country together. Are we... Are we on the path to start seeing more responsible um, uh, actions from corporations, specifically recognizing that um, the automotive industry needed chips and needed the government to step in and are willing to kind of sacrifice some of that connection? Are we potentially on the precipice of um, understanding that this geopolitical conversation is more than just we can get cheap labor here but if we invest in this country we can actually do a more robust and more thoughtful job at producing our product i'm certainly not ready to give that credit yet <laughs> i mean me either from being honest <laughs> i really am not it's yet. a nice idea but i'm not i'm not ready for that either i i will certainly have to see it to believe it i think it's i think it's a time will tell mm -hmm. and i think it I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's something that could happen. I just think that it's going to, I think, I think it's going to take different ideas of what the economy should be. Um, that I think that we're starting to see if we haven't already seen it a little bit from the Biden administration, but, but um, it all kind of depends on how much we can actually do. The, the only thing that I think I'll say that I've, I've been kind of observing is that there's a, and this is, I don't think as a result of like this, but more so really the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think that some of our like companies and, and corporate America here are starting to understand that you have to invest here if you're expecting to sell here, right? Like you have to invest in employees, you have to invest in jobs because people who don't have money can't buy the products you're creating. I mean, I just, I just like there is more of like an awareness of like how crappier our economy has become for so many middle-class Americans and our inability to make big purchases of cars, of, of technology to, um, 
to invest further in our communities and in, in our schools, right? Like we haven't made meaningful investments in technology in our schools and in manufacturing, which in turn hurt our manufacturers here in this country. So I think like there's a level of awareness that's starting to occur, but I think that that has obviously just like everything else with, um, with capitalism and business, it's come down to their bottom line, not about a change of heart. Hmm. Yeah. And another thing that's a little bit unrelated, but kind of gets at the heart of, uh, making money <laughs> and going against the entrance of the people and the planet and the country and whatnot. Um, something that happened, I think a couple years ago now is China used to be kind of the world's trash can people like your recycling would go to China. That's where we took it. And then China said, we don't want to be the world's trash can anymore and just completely banned imports of trash from other countries. And now we can't recycle half the stuff that we could, not that China was actually recycling it in the first place, but now we can't recycle half the stuff we could um, because of that. And recycling doesn't make money. So even though it's good for the planet and arguably for people, um, nobody will do it. No companies will do it. I mean, you see companies trying to be more sustainable um, because that's kind of where the interest of people lies more. Mm -hmm. That'll get them more profit at the end of the day. But something weird about that is recycling really doesn't make money like the actual business of recycling. And so it's, it's a little unrelated from our conversation, but that's another thing that has happened over the last couple of years that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention ironically, but it's all about that money. I think that this is like a good kind of like round robin of conversation because I think that obviously we can't oversimplify what this bill means for the future of investments in technology and manufacturing in this country. But I think that like kind of have we, how each of us have said throughout the conversation that it's like an acknowledgement of the need for mm -hmm. it, right? So like we agree that it hasn't doesn't go far enough. We don't want this investment to. Um, we don't want to seem like unappreciative, right? Or we don't think that this investment, this initial investment, rather, I'll call it as a bad thing. But I think that based on our conversation, we were able to weed out that like, it's good, but it's just the start of something that has to continue if we actually are putting our money where our mouth is about this issue. Um, and then kind of what you said at the end there, Caleb, um, an acknowledgement that like we're in a changing an economy and we're in a changing, a changing world where bottom lines can't, aren't going to always be able to be the end all be all of our decision making because we are living in a world that is, is getting warmer and, and, our need for innovation is going to become more important and less about the bottom line, but about our survival. And so I think we're kind of like, we're, we're moving in that direction. And I think that because of our understanding of those issues, this bill makes a great investment in trying to make, uh, you know, take steps towards doing better. Take us on a tangent, Caleb. Okay, so I have two quick tangents for y'all this week. The first one is, is I got invited to a bachelor, bachelorette league, like fantasy league. Like oh, you told yeah. me about this. Put money into it kind of deal. And it's kind of fun. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I was like, okay, like I'm not going to know anything. I'm not going to watch it. And then I watched the first um, episode of the season like, I don't know, a few days ago, and it's so dumb. It's so stupid. I don't know how scripted it is or not, but it's... Yeah, I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when, when you put, like, some money onto it, it's a $10 buy-in, and, like, the grand prize is, like, 100 bucks. There's a lot of people in this. I'm, like, I'm kind of into it now, so I'm, like, watching the shows and stuff. I haven't seen this week's episode yet, though, so 
but it's kind of it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun, and the drama is just. I just like I, the thing that's good it's about it's weirdly show, intriguing. It's, it's weirdly intriguing. It's weirdly intriguing, and I don't have to think about it. You know, it's kind of nice to not have to think about like the world for a moment and just watch the stupid shit that happens in the show. Um, the other one is is what was postponed last summer to now this summer is the Euro twenty twenty and the Euro. Um, major tournament championship is a soccer tournament just for uh, your Euro- European countries. Other places do it. Like there's a Copa America for the Americas and whatnot. And I think Asia has one as well, but the Euro is really fascinating because like the heavyweight soccer teams are concentrated in Europe for the most part. And I just, I don't know. I love soccer. I played it when I was young and now like a big watching, like a big tournament again is there's something therapeutic about watching soccer for me. A lot of people find it boring. I feel like time kind of goes fast, even though it's like an hour and a half match at the very least. And watching how both teams figure each other out and strategize on the field through passing and whatnot is just very fascinating to me. I'm just glad it's happening. It, it came at the right moment of time. And uh, I'm looking forward to see who wins. Go Germany. That's my team. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. Yeah, so my tangent is actually going to be positive this week um because i like so i I have taken in i think i've mentioned this on the um pod before but i have over the past couple years like made a real intentional effort to take in like um queer content in international uh, for international and foreign movies and like really low budget lgbtq movies have been made in the u.s like from like the 90s on up um and one of the things is like we just have kind of terrible representation and like a lot of the experiences that are are shown are not are, are nowhere uni- nowhere near universal and often not handled with any nuance um and i you know just have watched love victor season two on hulu and i i just was really amazed with how nuanced they handled the entire storyline how it was not about um you know just like love and roses and, and everything went well. Like he, you know, he, and this is a little bit of spoilers. Um, so if watching, just stop listening. Uh, but <laughs> like they really handle like he, he, you know, his, his mother doesn't handle it well. And he has some really rough, like real high school situations that occur with, with his, with his boyfriend and the issue of race and the issue of like how you're different, um, how your, how your different ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds play huge factors in the way your parents are going to react. Uh, like despite of being like, um, you know, in a progressive area. And I just think that it hands, handles it in such a very real way um, that I'm giving kudos to to the writers and to the creators and and quite frankly, to the cast who, who handle it very well um, for a young cast. And I just, I'm really excited about our evolution on queer content and, and really handling things in a much more um, authentic and organic way. And I think that like, I, I want to give a round of applause for them kind of taking a step forward and, and something that I might, one of my huge criticisms of the first season was that, it didn't get down in the dirt enough. And this one really, really is like a messier, better version of the first season. Take us on a tangent, Terrell. My tangent is the fact that you both forget that you have to say it for me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Me being forgotten? Never. Um, I, I think my tangent kind of touching off of what you mentioned, Torrance is just how awful people of marginalized communities can be to one another. Um, I We both talked about this off air and sorry if this is ruining an episode for anyone, but there's a 
a, well, if you're on TikTok, you've probably seen it. Anyway, there is a scene in Love, Victor where a more masculine presenting um, gay male meets up with one of the white male uh, meets up with one of the main characters. I don't watch the show, so I can't provide all the perfect details, just what I saw. And um, they're at a coffee shop and they're talking and this character is like, oh, I die for this and saying some exaggerated things, but is clearly very happy to meet with this individual and go on a potential date with them. And um, all of that leads to him saying, oh, well, you're just a little different than what your profile said, or uh, you come off a little bit too exaggerated and too gay almost. And I can't help but think... Is this what the white male said? This is what the white male Mm -hmm. said. Yeah, yeah. I can't help but think about how many homosexual men who, one, stay in the closet because they never feel like they can be accepted, but two, have to argue and fight for themselves in public because they say things a certain way or act a certain way. I mean, right now we're recording, I'm in a crop top. Um, But those are the things that for whatever reason, our society is deemed too gay or too feminine for a male to wear. Even though if you go to a football training, they're wearing booty shorts and crop tops as they're working out. Like I, I don't, I find a lot of frustration in the fact that you have that type of marginalization and separation and segregation in the LGBTQ um, IA plus community. But then also from another side, being BIPOC, you have a lot of communities that don't even allow for you to identify as being a part of that community, whether it be for a religious reason or for an inability to understand um, sexuality and interest. Um, It's a lot of those frustrations and a lot of those pieces that I am happy are finally being shown on TV for people to hopefully have a more robust conversation around, but just a genuine question of something we always talk about. What would life be like if the marginalized folk all came together and band together? They would outnumber the racist white ones. They would outnumber the Karens, but because there's such an ingrained opportunity for us to separate ourselves, for colorism to be an issue, for, um, level of feminine um, behaviors to be an issue or the mass for mass BS. It's just, it rubs me the wrong way. And as we sit through Pride Month, I just get a little bit more angry. Yeah. And Troy, I hope you don't mind if I jump in on that a little bit, just because I, I, in the spirit of it being Pride Month, that like, one, yes, I am really happy that they showed that on the show because it, those are the conversations that I think are just so important that we have to show that those kinds of things occur in our community. But like, my gosh, guys, like, can we not do better to one another? Can we not be better for one another? We don't need to bring heteronormative um, expectations into our queer, our queer community. Um, and quite frankly, it's not, it's not helpful. It's not helpful because it only it only strengthens those arguments in the in the heterosexual community um, and the oppression that we face from them. Um, it's just yeah, it's just it's unacceptable and, and it continues to be sad that that those expectations um, are placed on young queer people. And we're supposed to be a safe space for one another, not another iteration of the oppression and the judgment that we that we face outside of it. That's well said. I thought you were going to be your normal, and that's our show. Well. <laughs> You know, it's well said. That's our show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Caleb. I'm Torrance. And I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. <laughs>